tonight we're going to talk, uh, follow up a little bit on some stuff that we've been talking about. Um, two weeks ago, I believe we talked about about how to how to relate to people the way the Father does, and through all the trials and all the tribulations that are going on in the country, and the many invitations there are to change side or pick sides and choose sides and do all that kind of stuff. Uh, I just really, I, I really want us to continue to grow in our ability to follow Jesus and to live the way that that He is in us to live. And, and I, I want to remind you of that too. We're not being asked to do something just on our own. We're not being asked to to uh, try to accomplish something uh, for God. We're being invited to accomplish something with God, and it's a it's a pretty cool deal. And so. Hang in there, and uh, and through through whatever it is that we're facing, we got uh, some news today that one of our family members, who's been just terrified of COVID, uh, thinks he has it. He won't be able to get tested until Monday. Uh, his name is Robert, and I just would like to stop for a moment and pray for him. And if anybody else has any uh, issues that they would like prayer for, you can unmute real quick and just let us know. Um, I think we'll be able to. Riley can track if you're talking or whatever, but. Um, don't see anything yet. So, Father, lift Robert into your presence. We're singing about your goodness as our Father. We're singing about uh, just the goodness period of you in our life being overwhelmed by your presence. I pray that you would touch him, not only heal him of the uh, COVID or the potential COVID or whatever it is that he's facing, but you would pour peace over him, Lord. Pour peace through him and into him. It goes beyond his understanding. That's the promise, Lord that you'll guard our hearts and minds. And, and, and we need to direct our thoughts to you. So I ask that you'd help us do that tonight through your scripture and through our time together. And do that for Robert, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, well, I'm going to try to share my screen, and I'll be going back and forth a little bit. We'll see how this goes. Um, here. Is... The beginning slide, I think. Oops, that's the power show. Here comes the slide. There we go. All right, so some of you that are online, can you see that okay? All right, cool. Looks good. I got a couple thumbs up. And can you uh, can you still see uh, me in a little picture on the right? All right, excellent. We're, uh, we're rocking. So we're going to talk about an insight that I've gotten recently, I believe from the Lord. One of my Larry, favorite stories is- Larry? Yes, sir. We see the word, the importance of knowing and engaging you, but the rest I can't see because my little picture's on top of it. So if anyone else has that, you can move the pictures to the side if you need to. Yeah, that would be helpful. Yeah, you can drag the pictures over to the side. And I kind of built the PowerPoint so that it would accommodate them easier on the right side of your screen. And you just do that by reaching over there with your mouse and uh, up at the top and grabbing it and move it over. All right, cool. Yeah, anybody, if you, if you need any further instruction, just go ahead and break in. Um, so anyway, I love this story of the of the woman that was presented before Jesus uh, called the adulterous woman or the woman caught in adultery. And, and I, I've loved it forever. Uh, I've loved it because there's no question about what God thinks about adultery because that's right there rooted in the Ten Commandments and he's had an expression of that forever. You can certainly understand why because it destroys lives. But there's also no question when you look at Jesus, what he thinks of people 
who are caught up in adultery because that's what this is a story about. But I noticed something in here that I had never noticed. And I felt like the Lord kind of pointed out as being important. And what I'm trying to do as, as we go through these is, I know I have a, oh, somebody said happy anniversary to Vicki and I. Yeah, it's our 45th anniversary tonight. So thank you very much. And she's on here somewhere. Um, 45 years. That's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. I was 20 and uh, she was 19 when we got married. And uh, we figured it would be just as easy to figure out how to be married uh, early as it would figure it all out before we did. And God's been good. So we're there. <laughs> anyway, uh, so in this, in, this, uh, in this story, I believe the Lord shared a little key that is going to help us practically apply this in our life. And, uh, and I'm, I'm hoping that we can, uh, we can get there real quick. So if you can see that first screen, it's going to be John 8. I'm going to cover 1 through 12. And the, the concept is how important it is to be known as you. The word you. That's why I put it in quotes there. Uh, and to be known as you in the light that is God. Now, it would be equally important. We're going to see this in the story. For, the, for you to know other people as you, as them, as the, the person that they are characterized by that pronoun. So, I mean, the grammar's a little weird right now. Uh, we'll, uh, we'll head into the next slide. I want to do some review first. And uh, I know there's a few of you on here that, that I, I don't know that we've met. And it always is good to cover some things. So there's another principle that's a big part of Joyland, a big part of my understanding. And it's that and it's something I discovered when I was studying about the phrase God is in the New Testament. And in the New Testament, there are four instances, and only four, which is interesting, only four instances where the phrase God is is followed by a noun. There are a few times when God is alluded to in the form of an adjective or an adverb is another modifier or something along those lines. But, but there are four distinct places that the, the phrase God is, the declaration God is, is followed by a noun. And here they are. In John 4.24, it's right up here in the top. In John 4.24, God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. So God is spirit. Spirit is a noun there. And then in the next one, fire is Hebrews 12.29. It's the last verse in chapter 29 of Hebrews. And it says God is a consuming fire. Consuming is uh, an adjective that, that modifies fire or an adverb that modifies fire. It would be an adjective, I think. Uh, but fire is the noun. So God is spirit and God is fire. And that opens up a lot of implications. The third one is found in 1 John chapter 1, and it's in verse 5, and it says, God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. Uh, God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. So God is spirit by nature. And, and remember that a noun describes the essence of something. It doesn't describe what something is doing. So I could say I was a runner, which would not be true, uh, except when I'm scared. But uh, that doesn't describe the essence of me. That describes something that I do. Uh, I could also, you know, anything along those lines. But, but uh, I'm a human being. That's, that's a noun. That's, that's something about who I am. Uh, the same would, would be true of I'm a father or a grandfather, or something like that. So anyway, that's what the importance of these is. And then in the last one is a kind of a double whammy because it's said twice in the same chapter. And I, so I call it the love, love noun. God is in 1 John 4, 8, God is love. In 1 John 4, 16, God is love. 
And um, it says, we have come to know and to believe the love which God has for us. God is love. And the one who abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. So very significant designations. So as I have grown and trying to understand who the Lord is, uh, I, I give a great deal of weight to these nouns, these God is statements. And I think it's fair to do that. Uh, I also believe the diversity that is revealed in who God is, is pretty handy when you get in here. Tonight, we're going to look a little bit at one of the implications of God is light. And, uh, and, and that's why I put in the beginning of that slide, knowing, being known as you, me knowing you as you, you knowing me as, as me or you from your perspective, and the, and the way God knows us is that way. We're going to go ahead and get into it. So let's go to the next slide. I also wanted to review what we went over the last few weeks, and particularly two weeks ago. Paul is operating here. This is in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And in verse 14 up there, Paul said that the love of Christ controls us. And then he gave the reason why. Having concluded, having made this judgment is what it says in David Bentley Hart's translation. The scriptures tonight are out of the New American Standard. But uh, when we studied before, we, we used the New Testament by David Bentley Hart. And he said, having made this judgment, that one died for all, therefore all died. One died for all, therefore all died. And then it moves on to say, as a result of that, or therefore, because of this, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh. Even though we've known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him this way no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away, and behold, new things have come. Now, we've been on a journey at Joyland for a while to really open our hearts to and understand uh, what it means to be in Christ. And we have a broader view of that uh, because that, than, I, than I used to have when I was younger. Uh, I don't believe, I believe we're in Christ because God has placed us there because we've been created in there. He came and brought that creator relationship to us. And I believe that we're in Christ because of the incarnation and because he came here to assume the life that we have and to get into that life. And, and one of the, the big reasons we believe that is a passage of scripture in John chapter 14, where Jesus is talking about the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and all that. And he said, in that day, you're going to know that I am in my father. You are in me and I am in you. And so we just want to give some weight to the reality of that. But if, if, if somebody here has got different thoughts about it, no, you can't, uh, you're not in Christ until you, you're born again. You're not in Christ until you uh, say the prayer or something like that. That doesn't affect anything about tonight uh, or about the message tonight. Um, I'd encourage you to, to consider where people are if they're not in Christ. But uh, we're, we're talking about us. We're talking about how we, being in Christ, having confessed, knowing this, how we can see other people describe them not by their essence perhaps but to describe them by their behavior is a real temptation let's take a look at the next slide here how can we live with others like these scriptures that paul just put here suggest well i found an example in jesus life and it's the one that i mentioned at the beginning we're going to look at the story of the woman presented in the temple caught in adultery. So I'm just going to read through this with you. We're going to highlight a few words, and then I want to have some discussion about it if, if we can. Starting in verse 1 of John 8, 
But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again unto the temple, and all the people were coming to him. And he sat down and he began to teach them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery, and having set her in the center of the court, they said to him, now let me stop before I go into what they said. I, I, I tried to kind of concentrate on, on a mental picture of this scene. Uh, I've seen photos and depictions of the temple. Jesus is there, and it says that all the people were coming to him, and he sat down and began to teach them. And then the scribes and Pharisees brought this woman there. So I know it's pretty easy to think of. I used to think of this as just a small group of uh, Pharisees and scribes around Jesus and this woman. But there was probably a bunch of other people there in eyeshot and earshot of the same thing. So I would encourage us for the sake of today to just think about it and let that scene expand a little bit and realize that there's probably a, a good number of, um, of people that are there. So they brought him and they set her in the center of the court and they said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. Now in the law of Moses, I know in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What then do you say? And I want to emphasize a couple of words here. So keep an eye as I change slides. One of the ways to live under the influence of the scripture, the way we were talking about it, is to realize that Jesus' preoccupation is with people and people are not issues. People are not issues. Down at the bottom, Look at what they said. Now, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. They weren't looking at this woman. I don't know if they knew her name. I don't know if they even knew the guy she was supposedly and probably committing adultery with. I don't know anything about that. What I know from this, this word, though, is that she was defined by the adultery. She was defined by the act that they were identifying her with. And her adultery was the issue, not her as a person. So they said, teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. Now in the law of Moses, in the law of Moses commanders to stone such women, what then do you say? Now I personally think, and I didn't emphasize it on the screen, but I think that's where they, they got into trouble is they finished with that phrase, what then do you say? Because now they're not dealing with a class of people. They didn't say, what then do teachers say? What then, then do itinerant teachers say? You know, what then do pretend messiahs say? They said, what do you say? And he wasn't bashful about moving forward with the process, although he didn't say anything. They were saying this, testing him, so that they might have grounds for accusing him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote in the ground. But when they persisted, and the, the tense of one of the verbs earlier, it says when they said, it means they were saying, all of them were saying, and saying again, and saying again, and being active. So he said, but when they persisted in asking him, he straightened up and he said to them, he who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and he wrote on the ground. And when they heard it, you know the story. When they heard it, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones. And he was left alone and the woman where she was in the center of the court. She'd been put there, of course, to be put on display. And now she really was on display 
because all of the accusers that had surrounded him had left. So there's, again, a simple thing I want you to see here that Jesus did. First of all, he didn't buy into their situation. He didn't choose to treat this woman as a class of sin or as a class of behavior. But look at that one. He treated her as an individual first. And the stinging thing, and I've heard sermons and I've preached them, taught it on this, that, you know, the reason the older went away first is they had more sins accumulated, all this kind of stuff. But I think there was something else. This is the insight that Jesus began to show me. There was something else special in the way Jesus handled this situation. Not the woman. He handled her very special, too, but in a different way. But he handled this situation special. He said, he who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. He put it in their court to do something with this person as a woman, not as such women, not as a category of the law. I think that's profound. Just think about it a second. He forced those men to look at her, and they couldn't do it. They couldn't do it, and they couldn't keep their righteous indignation. They couldn't do it, and they couldn't keep the judgment that they had rendered, and they couldn't do it, and they couldn't stay with their thing to try to trap them in an accusation. And the reason he said that, I don't think was just a mechanical ploy. I think it was because he looked at her. I think that he knew the father dealt with her as an individual. He dealt with her as a person. So if you reflect back a little bit on what Paul said, uh, having come to this conclusion, having come to this judgment, that one died for all, therefore all died, and that if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation, we don't regard anybody according to the flesh anymore. We're not going to look at anybody like a class of sin. We're not going to look at anybody defined by, by their behavior or by their their gender, by any of those kind of things. Not to say those things aren't, aren't issues. I, I, they are. Certain things are. But people aren't issues. People are people. People are, 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 are people made in the image of God. People are image bearers. And this idea of it being personal, I really felt, felt like that was a significant thing. Be the first to throw a stone at her. He goes on and says, straightening up, Jesus said to her, woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? You see the you there? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, I do not condemn you either. We'll look at that in a little bit. Go from now on, sin no more. Uh, there's three words here that I want to point out the Greek roots in. The word woman uh, is the word gune. And interestingly enough, here's a definition of it. it it's a, a respectful term. It's not meant to be anything slanderous. Uh, it's a respectful term. Jesus, I mean, uh, the angel of the Lord used it when talking to Joseph in a dream about marrying Mary uh, after she had become uh, impregnated by the Holy Spirit. So it was, it was um, yeah, angel of the Lord using that. And then Jesus used this exact same word, gune to refer to his mom at the wedding of Canaan when she said, woman, or he said, woman, what do you have to do with me? And it was also used again, again, with the woman at the well. Now think about the power of that story. 
the respect that Jesus treated that woman with enabled him to get into the reality of her life. Remember, a uh, woman, what you're saying is true. The uh, uh, You don't have a husband. The man you're living with is not your husband. You've had a number of them before. And, uh, and she walked away from that encounter with Jesus telling the people of the village, he told me everything about my life. So it's the same word, gune. Uh, it's not a weak word. It's not a word that is uh, reserved only for flattery, obviously, by that case. But uh, it's also the word that, that uh, Jesus used when he was hanging on the cross. And he said to John uh, and to his mom, Mary, woman, here's your son. And son, here's your mother. So I want you to first understand that the first, the, the thing that he says, the first thing he says to this woman is a, a term of respect. It also could be used for, for wife, for sister. You know, it really made me think, was Jesus seeing this woman as a part of his bride? Was he seeing her as somebody that was a sister, somebody that was an image bearer of her father and his father? And I think he was. I think he was. All right. The next words I want you to look at are these simple ones here. Did no one condemn you? Katakrino. And just so you know that the phrasing that Jesus used is exactly the same word. Both these words, condemn and condemn, are katakrino. And what that means is to set a judgment against. So did no one set a judgment against you? Did no one throw a stone at you? At her? And then he goes, well, I do not condemn you. I don't set a judgment against you either. Go from now on, sin no more. The you here is what I want us to think about. Woman, spoken in respect, spoken to family, spoken with a kind of dignity that he would later apply to his mother. Where are they? Did no one condemn you? And she said, no one, Lord. And Jesus says, I don't condemn you either. Now go and sin no more. I believe with all my heart that Jesus has set an, ex an example for us to overcome the real, genuine challenges. And I, I know they're challenges. When we look around us and we see behavior like we're seeing when we look in us and see behavior like sometimes we put out, I know that it's, it's crazy. But the first step is to realize that people are not just their behavior. And also to realize that people are not first their behavior. First, they're the people that God made. And he's predestined them to be conformed to the image of his son. And so the next verse, Jesus said, uh, he again spoke to them, talking to the people. And he said, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And before we go into 15, a couple of verses down, that's where the idea of, of knowing like the Father knows. Who do people look like in the light of who God is? And that's the way I like to ask that question. Who do people look like in the light of who God is? 
God never, ever thought that that woman, the father never looked at that woman and lost sight of her as a daughter of his and a daughter of Israel. Did he see her behavior? Yes. So I was asking the Lord about this and, and uh, during my journaling time, and I felt like he, he came back to me with a question that helped me understand a little bit. He said, there's no doubt that her behavior was damaging and wrong. But he says, why do you think she was an adulterer? And I thought for a second, and I felt like I had an answer, so I was going to venture forth. I said, because she was desirable. And he said, yes. And he said, beauty can be twisted. Passion can be twisted. But it doesn't start that way. It's a reflection of my image in her. The enemy doesn't make those things. He doesn't create them. And so seeing that woman as Jesus did personally and in the light of the Father, that could change the way we think. There's a lot of twisted behavior that we would, if we're not careful, allow to define who someone is. But what if that is just a, what if it's a twisted thing that really speaks of creativity or passion or courage, but it's all in the wrong way? Um, it's, it's used to overcome fear, speak out of blindness or darkness. So the question is, what are we being asked to do when we're being asked to, to uh, not look at anybody after the flesh? I think we're being asked to do what Jesus put on display here. There's other cases. Uh, the demoniac of Gadara, the moment that he had an encounter with Jesus, he was set free and of his right mind. And he was actually elected and commissioned to be a spokesperson. I thought about Jesus dealing with Pilate. And if you think about it, Jesus was very respectful to Pilate. And keep in mind, he was a ruler holding Israel in oppression. And Pilate even said to him, if you remember, he said, uh, don't you know that I have the power to release you or to send you to death? And Jesus just looked and said, you don't have any power. That hasn't been given. He saw people and situations the way the Father saw them. And I believe we can do that. I believe that's the point of what Jesus is asking. He wants us to realize, you can come and ask me how to see. So Jesus saw this woman, and he gave her the respect and the title, and, and he treated her as a person, as an individual. He didn't treat her as such women, like the Pharisees did. He treated her as you. The other thing that I want to point out about, about the you part is, uh, matter of fact, let me back up there and see if I can. I don't know if we have a lot of responsibility to think about and treat the general populace one way or another. I mean, I think we should regard all men as valuable. I think if we believe that Jesus died for everybody, that certainly um, should govern our thinking. 
I also believe that if we uh, if we believe that all all men and women are made in the image of God, we should have a certain a reservation of dignity as we think about them. But I but in this this effort to live out practically our life in Christ, I don't really know if we need to worry about how we think about Republicans or Democrats or how we think about millennials or how we think about the, you know uh, this race or that race or this ethnicity or that ethnicity or this gender or that gender. I, I don't know that we have, I don't know that we're called to do that. I don't know that there's any point in thinking that way. I do know this. I know that we're not supposed to think about people just as part of a big group like that because everybody's an individual and because everybody is a you. Now the father, this is something else I felt like the Lord told me specifically. The father loves all of the cosmos. But he relates to us, he communicates to us, and he reveals to us who we are as individuals, as individual sons and daughters. And I just believe that Jesus is, is giving us a clue here in the way he treated this woman. He didn't dispute her sin. He didn't say, oh, you got it wrong, guys. She's not an adulterer. He just said, well, let the one without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And he brought her back into focus in their judgment. And he brought her back into focus in her judgment of herself. Woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? David Bentley Hart translates the word woman, madam. Madam, where are they? A respectful tone. Did no one condemn you? And she said, no one. And he said, I do not condemn you either. Go and from now on, sin no more. I believe those words were empowering. I really do. So then Jesus said, here's why. Here's why I could see her that way. This is just the next verse. I'm the light of the world. Then he put it on us. And he said, he who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have, will possess the light of life. Jesus looked at that woman in the light that God was. In 1 John, where we're told that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If you read the next few verses after that, it goes on to say that the one who uh, uh, says he loves God but hates his brother is a liar. And the one uh, who doesn't walk in the light, but, but walks in darkness, doesn't know God. God is light. Jesus is the light of the world. And those of us who follow him won't make our judgments in darkness. Darkness is what the Pharisees did when they lumped that woman into the group of such women. And got their justification in doing so out of the law. In verse 15, he says this. He says, you judge according to the flesh. This is what I believe Paul was saying not to do, and that he didn't do because they realized that Christ had died for everybody. Jesus says, I am not judging anyone. This is the last point that I think we're gonna, I'm going to make and we're going to stumble over. Does everybody just get away with everything? Does no one get held accountable for their sin, for their 
abuse, for their poor behavior, for their abusing of me or whatever. I, I reflect back on a scene in the Shack movie where Mac was asking Papa about that concerning the killer that uh, killed this little girl. And he goes, oh, nobody gets away with anything. Let me ask you a question just while you're thinking with me. Do you think this woman felt like she got away with anything after that morning? What do you think the most profound transformative element of that experience was? Was it the embarrassment of being captured or the fear of being captured by the, by the uh, Pharisees or the scribes or whoever got a hold of her? Or was it the embarrassment of being drawn before Jesus in the temple with all his people? Or was it the profound encounter that pulled her dignity out of the darkness and sent her on her way with the empowering words, go and sin no more? I have a hard time believing it wasn't the latter. I think that's the power that we have to bring into the relationships in our lives with one another, with people out in the world. And I think if we'll allow it, the very act of the very act of letting ourselves surrender and trust Jesus and grow in him will reveal that that's how the Father sees us. I think the Holy Spirit will confirm that, we'll be able to say amen to it, and we'll be able to say amen to that with each other. So anyway. Back up to verse 8 through 10. Let's choose to follow Jesus' example. I don't know what any of us, a situation any of us have ever been in where, you know, was parallel to this kind of situation. I know uh, as a pastor, I've been in a couple spots where there were people who wanted somebody publicly punished for their sin. And uh, kind of the Scarlet A type of thing from the old story. And I knew that I couldn't do that. I knew that that wasn't the heart of the Father. Um, in that particular situation, there had been repentance. There had been confession. But that wasn't enough for some, some people. They wanted there to be a public, whatever, humiliation or something. Um, and, you know, it, it's not even that that was just a bad choice on their part or a bad desire. It's not what the kingdom is about. It's not the way God works. It's not why Jesus came. It's not why he died. We want to align ourselves with the reasons that he, that he did what he did. But more importantly, we want to align ourselves with who he is. And I do honestly believe that these words, and specifically this emphasis on the personal dignity and the created value, of this woman was the, was the experience. I think that the Pharisees may have gone away convicted a little bit, maybe shamed a little bit. Maybe they were recollecting their own sin. Maybe they just were, I don't know, mystified that their mob momentum was so easily broken when he said, one of you throw the first stone at her. But I think she was a transformed person. I think she was reconnected with her created value and the dignity and the beauty that had gotten twisted along the way. And I think that's 
I think that's who we are and what we're about. So here's Jesus' example to live lives that can follow him this way. It's a practical application of this admonition that Paul made about since Christ died for all, all have died. And therefore, we no longer regard any man as flesh, but we recognize that anyone that's in Christ is a new creation. Jesus dealt with this particular woman, not a class of women called such women. Whatever the behavior is, whatever the sin is, that, that you and I are tempted to think about people belonging in a class of, if we will just simply deal with them as individuals and not as parts of the group, even though they may want to claim to be part of the group, that may be the, the lure of that appeal that they're in. If we can get in a place where we deal with them as individuals. Now, we can't do that with everybody. So let's take, for example, people that were riding in the streets or probably still be doing some of that. But, but back when it was you know big and, and they were done with their umbrellas and their goggles and their masks and all that stuff. I don't know. I, don't, I, I can't advise us how to think about them as a group. But if God should give us the opportunity to deal with one of them as an individual, can we see them in the light, the eternal light that God is? Can we see their created value? Well, maybe not at first. Maybe all we'll be able to see is their clothes or their, or their uh, attitude that is manifesting in the anger or the hatred or in their words. Maybe all we'll see is the attack that's leveled against it physically or verbally. But if we can find a little refuge from that and not prematurely judge. Let me back up just a little bit. How to live with each other like this little subtitle or tag title up there I put is just don't judge. And I know I, I, know I run the risk of in saying it as simply as that. But what? Uh, who's gonna? Who's gonna hold what account? You know, blah blah blah. If it's if it's good enough for Jesus to say, "Look, you judge according to the flesh," I'm not judging anybody. Then we have to trust the economy of the kingdom and the economy moving into eternity, into His judgment, into His wisdom. And he says, you judge according to flesh, which there's no doubt that we do. Matter of fact, I don't know how we judge according to anything else. But I'm not judging anybody. So Jesus dealt with this woman in particular. What if we weren't responsible for issues as much as we are accountable to and open to and a resource for people? Just something I want you to think about. The next one is that Jesus knew her as his papa did with respect to her real identity and her created value. And you know what's interesting is her real identity had to be revealed to him by the father. The beginning of the whole story of the one caught in adultery starts with Jesus going off in the morning, early morning out into the mountains. And I, maybe, maybe papa said, hey, they're going to bring a woman to you. And she's guilty. But this is who she really is. And I don't know that. I don't know that. But I do know that if we spend time for that, and I have a feeling that if we give ourselves to the purposes of seeing real identity manifest in people and real created value redeemed, 
I bet you God will start talking to us about some of the people that we encounter. And that's what he did. And then third, Jesus engaged with her as the individual that she was. He chose to engage her as you. And he made those Pharisees do the same. And it was too much for them. These are just three practical aspects. Don't deal with people as an issue. Deal with them as a person. Don't deal with them as a group that is identified by group behavior or even individual behavior. Let's deal with them as, as individual people who are sons and daughters made in the image of God. At the very least, made in the image of God. And if you, if you can sense uh, that, that there is, you know, uh, when the Holy Spirit was poured out at Pentecost, people asked about it. And uh, Peter said, this is that which was spoken of by the prophet Joel. And it says, in the last days, I will pour my flesh out, or my uh, spirit out on all flesh. They brought a woman before Jesus, manifesting deeds of the flesh, adultery. Jesus had the ability to look and see that the spirit of the father had a claim on that woman. And at Pentecost, undoubtedly, that claim would be fulfilled. So that's in our history. It was in his future. I think we can do the same. So anyway, um, any thoughts, any comments or suggestions? I'm going to go ahead and stop sharing so I can see more of you. Uh there are times that um, we do judge according to the flesh to protect ourselves. Mm -hmm. um, and so those are things, you know, we don't want to lose sight of that. Right. Um, we want to, we want to guard our family. We want to guard our ourselves and keep individuals that we see in the outwardly as someone that this is someone that we don't want to have, enter into our realm, but we can be praying for them, seeing them who they are in Christ. Yeah, I, I think that's a great example. I've actually got a little example like that in my life. I, um, a long time ago, I, I, I um, well, it's a few years ago, I, Vicky and I bought a revolver, a small uh, uh, revolver, and I was, she, she, I, she wanted a gun that she felt safe with and comfortable with and so on. And was going to learn to use. And this particular revolver had some, some mechanical problems. And I was real discouraged. And I just put it back in its box and forgot about it. And uh, so this week, I, or last week, I got a little file and I started looking at it. And I thought, you know, I bet this is it. it, it when it was milled inside the way the revolver works, uh, the, the cylinder was hanging up. And so I just took a little diamond file and I, I pretended I was a gunsmith. And uh, yesterday morning, after uh, after breakfast with the guys, I went home and I grabbed it and some stuff. And I went out into the national forest, got to a safe place, and I shot 15 rounds through it. And it was just smooth as silk. And I was super happy, you know, because I had, like, fixed it. And I, I, and I should have fixed it years ago. But then it created the kind of thoughts about exactly what you're saying. So, Larry, you have this for, like, a, a sense of protection, primarily. And... Wouldn't that put you in a position to have to judge the person on behavior as they were breaking in your home in the middle of the night? And, and so, yeah, it's a real, it's a real issue. Um, I don't have all the answers for it, uh, but I do know 
that even that degree of twisting that would cause somebody to, to do something that required that we respond to it, protect even, even with violence and, and lethal force like that, if that was the choice that we made, um, that doesn't erase the reality, like you're saying, Richard, of the created value, of the purpose, however far off they've got. And so, how? yeah, that's a great question. How do we live in this world and be responsible for caring for ourselves and our own with, um, with things the way they are and not lose sight? Now, here's where my, my, my thought is. Start by resisting the temptation to just lump people into categories and, and ignore them as individuals and think of them only as groups. Uh, there's great places to practice that that aren't as personally threatening as home invaders. Uh, you can, you can, politics is a tremendous arena that you can use to, to separate when you're thinking about an individual and when you're thinking about a class of people and then ask the Lord, Lord, could you show me how you see this individual? We've talked about that some through these last months of political turmoil. I have a uh, question on groups when you can get to it after this. With yeah, sure. No, but just, you know, that or, or, or uh, Lord, am I, am I leaving room for this person to be a you if I were to be put in face-to-face contact with them? That's why I also think, we ought to be careful about the judgments we render only on the basis of thinking of people as part of a group, because it's still a judgment, and we may still be transgressing with that, opening ourselves to judgment coming in return when we don't need to make that kind of judgment. If somebody's breaking in your house, you got a you got a judgment to make. If you've you know, if you're running against somebody in political office, you have a judgment to make. Or if you've got to make a vote, you you, you got a judgment to make. But there's a lot of times where the, we release ourselves into the habit of judging people on the basis of the flesh, external things, when probably we could just back away from the temptation and nobody would be the worse for wear. There's other times where... Um... Uh, as a body of people, of believers, we're watching out for one another. And you come across relationships that aren't healthy. Mm-hmm. And, you can, and you can advise individuals where uh, they, you see something that's happening. Um, you want to you protect them. Yeah. And so you want to you advise them about what you're seeing because they might not be seeing the same thing because of infatuation or something. Sure. So there's, there's, our, there, there's protections that God has placed in the body uh, to help us um, avoid um, situations that would cause pain in our yeah. lives, un, unavoidable pain in our lives and uh, wisdom. You know, we're, we're, we're working with God's wisdom and in, in dealing with people, not that we reject individuals but we um we want to safeguard and uh pray for those individuals that we see that um um yeah that are nefarious or something yeah maybe there's a good time soon to revisit what judge means 
because there may be different versions of what judging means. And Jesus meant one thing, whereas separating and saying this is black and this is green is a judgment, but that's not the same as a kind of like setting a judgment against somebody. That's why I wanted to answer that katakrinos word, setting a judgment. Yeah. Um, so, the only, I, before we go to your question, right, or even continue the discussion about judgment, Richard, the only other thing I'd add is just one other factor that I, I'd like to, that I throw into my own life is, yes, I totally agree with you there. And there, there's a chance to be able to pull someone alongside and say, hey, you know, be careful as a relationship or something along those lines. If you have the opportunity to actually treat the, the other person, the potential perpetrator, as a you as well, in other words, to get in relationship with them, if you have your heart set to do that, and you have your heart set to preserve and, and to persevere their dignity and their creative value as well, that's when I think we can be the most helpful. And that also takes courage, because it's easy to stand on only one side of a situation like that. But... Uh, you know, it's the same thing when somebody comes and wants to talk to you about another person and you let them talk for a few seconds to realize they're going to bring somebody else in there in a negative light. And you say, well, here, let's go talk to that person together. I just think that that's one of those things. If you can't, can't always do it. I understand that. But. I don't know if we're going to find a perfect way to walk that out, but I think if we set our hearts that way. The Lord can help. Jesus was right in the middle between the two factions in this one, and it worked out pretty good for him. Ronnie? So besides the just don't judge being uh, a challenge in certain situations, yeah, yeah. Um, I had a question about God treating people as individuals mm -hmm. versus treating people as groups. Okay. It, it appears, at least Old Covenant, Old Testament stuff that groups was a big deal, like the chosen people, the Israelites, the they were God's chosen people. So others weren't. And so it appears at that point that they were being treated by God as groups. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm wondering if when it came to resolutions for specific issues, then at that point is when things went to individuals. And it wasn't so much of a group, but I don't really know that. So what are your thoughts about, because I, I can see if, if I, if I were to treat everybody of one political party as if they were a follower of all aspects of that, that I'd be treating them as a group and that wouldn't be necessarily fair, mm -hmm. but I usually start that way. And then I try to dig into what are the specifics that we're having a disagreement with perhaps. And so there is a mentality that I will start with a group, but then if I can, I'll try to get into the more individual yeah. parts. Okay, so so here's my thought on it. And, it, and it is a very legitimate question. There's no question that God does things to groups of people. He does things on behalf of groups of people. Uh, and, and so I'm not suggesting by saying that we should treat people as individuals that, that that's not, that doesn't happen. I mean, Jesus sent, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Okay. It's a pretty big group. It's a big group. It's a big group. And so there, there's definitely value and power, and there's no reason to deny that. I think when it comes to the idea of us being agents of helping people be transformed, I think that it, it's much more difficult to do that 
thinking in terms of groups than relating to people as individuals. In other words, I don't, I don't know how much responsibility I individually have for a whole class of people. Mm -hmm. I do think I have the responsibility to choose righteously regarding the issues that identify a group of that people. So I, I'm not going to, I don't feel compelled to in any way justify pedophilia just because individual pedophiliacs are people. But I want to reserve and, and be preserved by the grace of God, the right that if I get to deal with an individual person with that sickness or that problem or that sin, I want to be able to deal with them in the light of God and see if it's possible to see their value as an individual before God, their created value, and so on. Another way about that is in, in a very difficult situation, um, Nancy Cohen was talking, we were talking the other day, we had dinner over the place, and the subject again came up with, with uh, things like human trafficking. I think we should be on the right side of something like that, sex trafficking and that type of thing. And the right side is to try to prevent it. The right side is to try to bring it to light. The right side is to try to see justice. But the truth of the matter also is that if, if a trafficker can be encountered as a you and can begin to see the people as yous and not as just a class of people to be abused or whatever or profited off of, that's how you actually solve the problem in a big way. I've been trafficked for a long time. That's good. I'm joking. <laughs> but um, there's an expression, and I'm re-challenging all the expressions that I think about with understanding God better. But there was or is an expression, hate the sin, but love the sinner. Yes. Is is that still valid, do you think, with our new way of looking at things? In other words, you could hate the sin that the group is built around, but love the individuals that are involved in that group. Um, so I read an interesting article about that last week as I was thinking about some of these things. And uh, this particular person advocated that, that the uh, church give up on using that phrase. Okay. And, and uh, his reasoning made some sense to me and it mirrors mine a lot. We don't usually say that about people that we can tolerate their sin. So almost nobody says that about people that overeat. And almost nobody says that about people that gossip. We say it about people we want to put in a group. And, and, and I think that his observation in that article is correct. So, uh, so what about traffickers, for example, sex traffickers, right? As a group, uh, we, we love the group of them. No, I don't know that we can love a group of people. I think, it, I, I think we, we recognize, you know, I, I'm not advocating like sex trafficking is bad. It shouldn't happen even once. I don't think we have to compromise that at all. If I could drop a dime on a phone call and, 
have an entire sex trafficking ring arrested and put in prison, I would do it in a heartbeat. And I wouldn't feel like I was violating anything relative to love. But I don't know if I can be trusted hating the thing that I identify a group of people with. Hating sex trafficking? No, hating the thing I'm identifying a group of people with. Sex trafficking is an issue. I can hate the issue. But when I identify a group of people with it, you know, I just don't trust myself. With that expression, love the sinner but hate the sin. I mean, you're, you're, uh, the sex trafficking is the sin, I guess, in this sense. And it's the people that are involved with it that we're trying to love. But we, we're not agreeing with or saying that it's okay for sex trafficking to happen. Right. Right. So it's yeah. a little fuzzy for me to, 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 throw that one out yet can i say something sure please okay so um one of the things that i do and when i teach um you know all of these uh, groups have agendas behind them whether it's sex trafficking or um you know abortions whatever there's a certain amount of momentum and an agenda behind it that drives it and so I, I like to come against their agenda and not the people, um, because if I'm going to, if I'm going to be able to share Jesus with somebody who has a real belief that abortion is okay, and it doesn't matter what time frame, it doesn't matter if you're using it for birth control, it, it you know, you can have an abortion, I I can be against that agenda, but if I want to share Jesus or I want to share love or I want to share, you know, reality with that person, I have to look at them as a person and not the agenda that drives the group. And so you can use that for anything, politics, religion, uh, cultural uh, dispositions that we're going through, you know, the the big one on my my heart right now is the gender fluidity. What the heck is that about? You know, there's nothing scientific to that. It's parents forcing their kids into all kinds of things. And um, and I find it as an agenda disgusting. But, but I, we're, we're still saying or at least I'm still hearing the idea of not I'm using the word hate. Maybe it's too strong, but hate the sin and love the sinner. I that I'm not ready to throw that one out yet because everything right, I've I can, heard, I can see that. I yeah, can see that. Everything I've heard For so sure. far doesn't really seem to go mm-hmm. against it. And I, I heard what you yeah. said, Larry, about certain sins, yeah. you know, maybe we're okay with, but others we aren't. Um, and that's where the difference comes. But, you know, cause like I said, I'm trying to reevaluate everything that I've thought over the many years Sure. That I've been a believer that now I believe some of those aren't quite right. And this is one of those, I guess. You know, I would rather see, I would rather see uh, some new expressions, try to frame the, the same idea. Yeah. Uh, like, for instance, fight passionately against the sin, but fight passionately for the sinner. Uh, or. Right. Because what you don't if we want could, the sinner. Oh, sorry, you don't you don't want quote unquote the sinner. 
um, to me, it's the, it's the issue of being outside or inside of Christ. What did Christ do on the cross? All those people are in Christ. And so, you know, um, hating the sin and loving the sinner, um, I, don't, I don't know if I would throw that out, Ronnie, but for me, I, I, don't, want, I don't want to hate um, an individual. Right, I, I, yeah. You know, I just don't want to do that. And I don't want to alienate them by letting their sin um, define them, I guess. Right. So part of it would be if you're able to work in a discussion with an individual, try to help them see that they are an individual and then maybe they aren't believing every single thing that the group is suggesting and take it little by little rather. No, I would also, I would also like to re-examine what sort of motivation the hate provides. Does it really make me do anything or do I just want to feel superior? Expressions are just a way to get a concept across quickly. I mean, I think. And so the idea of sex trafficking, we use that. I mean, we picked a a very difficult challenge that should be pretty obvious that nobody needs to be for. (laughs) You know, I'm not for sex trafficking in any way, shape, or form. Well, if it provides for their family. It's, It's too big a compromise for that positive. Okay. So, I mean, that's an obvious one, maybe. And then we stick with, we start with that to get a concept and then we start parsing it out as it gets closer and closer to us. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But anyways, I've monopolized enough time. Thank you. Okay. Anybody else? Does it seem realistic that we could judge less than we do? Yes. <laughs> I found, all right, I'll monopolize some more. I found the ability to judge less by just understanding that people have different facts. And so I can actually let them be what I call crazy and not be so angry at them because they're acting on certain facts that I don't believe in. And so that allows me to get to another place where I can actually love them more and assume they're act, they actually have good intentions based on erroneous facts. Yeah. And that, that's another way to judge less, I think. The thing that the contrast I see in this story that we talked about tonight is that the Pharisees and the scribes couldn't see the woman because they saw the judgment. They saw her through the eyes of judgment. Jesus refused to be baited into the uh, dealing with her sin, he never disputed it. Matter of fact, he said, go and sin no more. So he acknowledged that what she had been doing was sin. But he refused to be baited into the focus on that, and and that left him free to actually see and know her. And I think that that created some transformation in her. Whereas I don't think that the Pharisees' approach to it had the possibility of creating transformation except transforming her from being alive to being dead. Can you hear me now? Yeah. I think your point of pointing out that she was addressed with a respectful term was actually empowering to her mm-hmm. that that's actually a big part of it. It's not just forget about the judge, but actually bring 
focus back onto who you really are from God's perspective. Anybody else? Hey, Larry. Yeah. You know, I was thinking about the, the judgment part of it. I think of human nature, our automatic response is to make a judgment, good or bad. I mean, it's just almost an instant thing that happens when we're seeing something that we agree with or disagree with. So I think what we're talking about is if the judgment is harsh and it's not ours to give, that's where check and balance has to come in. And you go to the Lord, you know, <laughs> if needed, you, you ask for forgiveness. But, you know, I, I have to be honest that there's many times I find myself running into a quick judgment because of something I find very distasteful or, or wrong, you know? Let me ask you a question, Tim. When you've done that, because uh, I know you are a self-reflective person and, and, you know, honest and all this kind of stuff. When you have done that, have you ever run into situations where you realize later that that quick judgment actually denied you some of the facts of the case or well, made you less effective? Absolutely. absolutely. Yeah, I mean, that, that's kind of the sense that I have is, yeah. is, is like what's accomplished. So like Richard, your illustration where uh, you're, you're protecting a person or we're protecting one another, that's got an obviously good goal in it. And I don't have a beef with that. Uh, but that, that also speaks to something that the story talks about, which is being directly involved and treating people like people and, and caring for their lives. Uh, to sit back and watch something on the news and let myself render a judgment about that doesn't affect those people in the least positively. All it does is it crystallizes something in me or puts a scale over my eyes that I think I could probably be better off without. So that it, I guess partly it's the remote judgment too. It's when you have a chance to deal with the person as a you and you still choose to deal with them as a class or an issue, that's that's what I'm hoping we get challenged to, to rethink. You know, we, we make judgments um, constantly throughout the day. And a lot of those are, are protective judgments to protect us from whatever it may be. And, and, I, and I think those are, that's a, um, a God thing because God doesn't want us to hurt, but not that we can't challenge those judgments later on, such as an individual we come across immediately, I might throw up a wall because there's something there that reminds me of something. I mean, I mean, might be something that I need to look at within myself to see if that's uh, uh, causing um, something I need to clear up in my life. But it may also be something that, okay, this individual wants to take advantage of me. So I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna give him the information that he needs or, or whatever it may be. Sure. Um, yeah, um, but, the, but yeah, judgments, I mean, we make them constantly without even knowing it mm -hmm. uh, daily. I think even questioning the validity of all of our own judgments or even having the capacity to question those and go, whoa, 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 let me back up a little bit from this one is a step in the right direction here. You know, so, yeah, I, I know there's not an easy answer to this and there's not this Pollyanna kind of just don't judge. That was kind of a simplistic statement. 
But <laughs> if if we could get in a situation where where course we're not talking about making a judgment should i go left or right or is it safe to cross the road that's not what we're talking about that's not a moral judgment that's not to stand on the corner and go is it safe to cross the road that is not setting a judgment against someone like katakrina means setting a judgment uh, from somebody is is fixating on something about a person and then making a charge against them in your heart um Anyway, Alan, look like you're grabbing for the unmute. I am, brother. It, um, I, I'm just looking at other other translation like the, and I think we're 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 sticking on fifteen and not on the others. But in in the Passion translation, it says, "For you set yourselves up as judges of others based on outward outward appearances, but I certainly never judge others in that way, for I discern the truth." And I am not alone in my judgments, for my father and I have the same understanding in all things, and he has sent me to you. There you go. Yeah. So it's it's like the, the word that fathers gives me, you've got to see people through my eyes. Yeah. Well, you know, and 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 the example with the scribes and the Pharisees, Jesus did say he like in John chapter five, he said to them. You've never seen God. You've never heard his voice at any time. That, I mean, that's a judgment, but it, it's a judgment that's true. So, yeah, we can I agree with you, Richard. There's you. We can't just disengage from discernment. Uh, but I do think that we can seek to judge based on revelation from the father more than we do. Yeah, and I think um, uh, a religious spirit brings about all kinds of judgments within, within ourselves. And uh, one obvious um, incident for me was Burning Man my first year. I was looking at people thinking, how could God love this individual with the actions that they're doing? Yeah. Uh, only to find out that God loved them anyway. Yeah, just he just like he loved me. So, um, religion will really taint your your vision in um, in that area. Yeah, you know that's a beautiful example of a, a technique that I think we could be conscious about using when we look at somebody, or we encounter somebody, or we're abused by somebody, and and we we're tempted to ask that question: God, how could you love them for what they're doing? If we just didn't make that a rhetorical question, but a real question, I think the Holy Spirit would use it to move us forward. So, Lord, I'm really offended by this, or I'm really pissed off by it, or I'm really hurt by it, or any number of things. But before I give into my emotion and I set a judgment against this person, how can you love them? How do you see them so you can love them? If we would just have the humility to, to do that, I believe that the Father would have a resource and a time to pull us into his counsel. And that would change us. Because I know that happened to you. And I, I, I had that experience up in Salt Lake that time. Oh, my gosh. Now, I don't think we necessarily have to understand all the reasons how and why. Because I think just knowing it 
just having God show me, let me show you how I see this person. I don't think that for us to agree with him, he has to be able to reveal everything that led up to their behavior, everything that led up to their choice. You know, there's no possible way we could know that. There's just the potential for a partnership between us and God. If we'll take that junior position and say, Lord, I don't trust how I see this. Right now, you see how it's making me feel. I want to lash out. I want to set a judgment against them. The, the word that's coming to my mind when I keep using that phrase is, I've got this super quick set cement. I want to wrap them in it and let it get hard as fast as possible. And before I do that, could you show me how you see them? And then I'll do it. And then I'll do it if I still don't agree with you. <laughs> but I'll at least be doing it in exact opposition to you and not just on my own merits. <laughs> All right. Anybody else got any thoughts? It's 8.15. We're about ready to head. Larry? Yes, sir. I, we just want to send uh, anniversary blessings to you and Vicki. And like you said, it's your 45th. Thank you. Message. So God bless you guys. And Thanks you know, a lot. And I just wanted to say, uh, you know, a merry and blessed Christmas to everybody on here. A happy, prosperous, and healthy New Year. Yeah, it'll be a little while before we see Tim and Meg. They're heading back to visit his family. And, and, and blessings to you as you're going back there, uh, protecting everybody from COVID, uh, helping them not have fears about it, and not getting overly embroiled in the political conversations with your family on the East Coast. Thank you. We'll try not to render a bunch of judgments to a yes, and of people. <laughs> just add a step in the middle. Lord, how do you see this person before I set this judgment on them? We'll, we'll, we'll let you know how we do. But <laughs> yeah, I've yeah. got the quick dry cement and the blow dryer to go with it. <laughs> Jen and Richard, too, happy second uh, honeymoon to you yes. guys. And yeah. Florida. Florida. Enjoy. Yeah. That's exciting. Janet, thanks for leading worship tonight. That was awesome. Doug, thank you. Yes. Thank you. Thank you guys. Janet has a comment. Okay. Okay. I just wanted to say that I it's an observation that um, we I think we tend to judge because the system of the world has trained us in that. Mm -hmm. And the more we renew our minds to truth, the less we judge. And the more we see people through you know, the eyes of Jesus and the Father, the less we're going to judge and see people as individuals. So, but I'm, I'm seeing a shift in things in the church and the body from the old system to, you know, the, the truth. Yeah. That's my observation, my prayer too. Yeah. That's yeah, that's good. That's good. All right. We're not going to solve all this in one or two talks, but... Think through, read that story in John 8 again, and just if if the if the fact that Jesus, like think about the, the perpetrators in this, kind of the perpetrators. First of all, she was the, the adulterer, okay? Let's just say that that's not disputed. Then these guys drag her before Jesus to try to accuse him and finagle him. But I think there was something powerful when he said, well, you who are without the, the one who's without the sin, you throw the first stone at her, at her. If we could just be agents of letting use you people deal with you people, not 
even let them separate one another into abstract classes. I don't know. There's just something here. There's something here. And yeah, Larry, don't give us well, some power. While you were studying this and working on it, did you get any downloads from God as to what he wrote on the ground? No. Okay. Just just checking. <laughs> um, some some say that it refers to Jeremiah 17, 1 and 13. What does that say? The Jeremiah, earth, the earth shall speak volumes against thee, if thou hast dust, whatever. <laughs> Jeremiah 17.1 is uh, the sin of Judah is written with a pin of iron and with the point of a diamond. It is a graven upon, it is graven upon the tablet of their heart and upon the, uh, the horns of your altars. Wow. 13, 13 says, what is the sin Lord, of Judah? O Lord, the hope of Israel all that forsake thee shall be ashamed, and they had a, um, departed from me shall be written in the earth, because they have forsaken the Lord and found and forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living waters. Interesting. I have a little observation before we go. Okay, Jen. Um. You just brought it up and reminded me again in that scene where he says, let him who has no sin cast the first stone. Uh -huh. he, he also threw it on each of them individually. Mm -hmm. He was dealing with her as an individual, but he wasn't grouping them. We tend to say they were the evil people in this scene. <laughs> that's very true. That's very true. He and grouped I think that's them and make a judgment against them. Mm -hmm. And he, 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 he had the wisdom and the love to to let each of them make their own decision. I don't know what he would have done if one had decided to cast the stone, but the way he said it and the love he had, I mean, love doesn't fail. Yeah. <laughs> so. Yeah, uh, I wonder if he'd have hopped up and taken the stone, <laughs> taking the bullet, you know, for her. Yeah. Uh, yeah, Jen, I'm not, you know, you, you just made me think of a simple way to, to say that. He dies, he dies for us all. Again, that, and yes. this is the judgment that Paul came to. That's the connection here. Having concluded this, that one died, therefore, uh, one died for all, therefore all died. Now we no longer regard anybody. There's a reason for this. It's not just philosophy or a better way to have a society. It's that God in his redemptive plan has applied a resource to everybody for the sake of reconciliation and, and re redemption. And somehow we, we've got a, take sides with that even if it's bigger than we can understand but i think that's a brilliant observation he no more dealt with them as a group than he did her that's really true love covers a multitude of sins and keeps no record of wrong amen <laughs> all right you guys god bless everybody, god bless everybody. Good night, everybody.